0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Korean Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Leslie Hickman, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Suk-yung Kim about her new book, Surviving Squid Game, a guide to K-drama, Netflix, and global streaming wars. The book, published by Applause Books, came out in May 2023 and explores the significance of Netflix's most-watched series, Squid Game. Dr. Kim is a professor at the University of California, L.A. She edited The Cambridge Companion to K-Pop, which also came out this year, and authored K-Pop Live, Fans, Idols, and Multimedia Performance, among many other publications. Her work has been recognized by the Association for Theater and Higher Education, the Association for Asian Studies, and other organizations. You can find more details about Dr. Kim's work on her university profile, which is linked to the episode description. Dr. Kim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. So I wondered if you could um, begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I am a scholar who chases uh, the pulse of our times. I think that's the best way to describe me. I'm always fascinated by what captivates people here and now, and what that says about this particular moment that we're all caught in. Um, So I have been really um, immersed in digging deep into and exploring the roots of how Korean popular culture has come to precisely have accomplished that in recent years. So um, I've been writing about K-pop, and more recently, global streaming wars. And prior to that, I've written books on North Korean uh, state visual culture and propaganda performances, as well as uh, DMZ border crossing performances.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, And that flows in nicely to my first question. If you could give us some more specifics about why you chose Squid Game for your book project. Oh, yes.
0: (laughs) I guess in order for me to talk about this book, um, I have to really remind our listeners what kind of uh, lives we were living back then. Um, We moved so quickly and... um, We all feel like we're back to normal, but just, you know, go back two years in time and uh, think of where you were two years in Mm -hmm. 2021. Um, We had such different kinds of lives back then. Everyone was living under fear of not exactly knowing when the pandemic would end. And a lot of us have lived through a very abrupt and severe lockdown at that point. Um, This is not only to say that, you know, we had suddenly a lot of time to watch um, streaming sites, but also to say that the uncertainty of life was really looming large. It is always there, but I think we were living through the conditions of feeling it, seeing it on a daily basis, much more viscerally. And I wasn't an exception to that. Pandemic had a huge impact on my life. And I really felt like the humankind was experiencing some, something that we haven't collectively experienced before. Uh, also during the times of real time communication. So this collective mentality of frustration and unending fear of Living Through Another Day was really uh, the context uh, out of which Squid Game was born. And at the same time, um, I was also realizing that people were still connected to the world through the power of pop culture and widely available media. And South Korea was really um. Kind of at the forefront of making people feel connected in certain ways, and Squid Game, I think, was a uh, was at this kind of naught point where all these forces were intersecting. So I knew that I had to write about this.
1: Wow! Yeah. Uh, what was your first impression of Squid Game when you saw it? Oh, um I
0: <laughs> it was strange,
1: and <laughs> oddly, it felt
0: new. And I think that's quite a statement um, coming from somebody who feels jaded by seeing different variations of the same story or, you know, same narrative uh, framed by different colors and size. So it felt really new. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say it with a uh, acknowledgement that you know, a lot of these gore and uh, violence and extremities that we often associate with Asian um, extreme genres were now transported onto TV screen. Um, And it's no wonder that Hwang Dong-hyuk has actually never directed TV series before, prior to Squid Game. And he brought this kind of more of a cinematic scale um problems and violence and extremities onto uh home theater. So that felt new to me. And that's why I'm saying it felt new to me, uh, precisely in that sense. Um and it was very addictive. Um I was immediately captivated by the visuals. I love the design of the Squid game, and that's why the book devotes um significant portion to analyzing design. So it felt new and addictive. I couldn't stop watching it. I just sat through the whole night and finished the whole show.
1: Wow. Yeah. I think a lot of people had the same experience when they viewed it. Yeah. So for my next question, um, you write that Squid Game is a child of both Netflix and K-drama. Could you speak about how these two forces brought together um, or came together to form Squid Game? Uh, Sure. Uh, And I say in my book that it's a happy marriage.
0: (laughs) It's a marriage of convenience, but it's a marriage that works and is still going on happily. Um, Starting with Netflix, Um, Netflix uh, back then when I was writing this book was... uh, uh, a business model that was based on expanding a uh, number of subscribers, right? Back then, it didn't feature any advertisement. Its uh, profit was solely generated f- from uh, subscription fees that we pay. Um, and in that sense, Netflix as a company realized that they have reached a certain kind of uh, point where they couldn't expand further in North America and Europe. Hmm. Uh, in terms of number of subscribers, whereas there were still large uh, kind of room. There was still large room to grow in Asia, uh, South America and Africa. And it's no uh, surprise that they saw K-dramas and uh, Korean contents as uh, having uh, proven itself and having future potential to speak broadly to future subscribers in these regions. Once again, Asia, Africa, and South America. So it was rather an obvious choice. Now, uh, speaking from the perspective of uh, Korean drama producers and um, production companies, Netflix's model of investing a lump sum upfront and therefore giving uh, drama producers freedom to make whatever they want to make without being consumed by potential financial failure, uh, in a way, was an attractive model. So to explain this a bit more, you have to know how Korean dramas were made prior to their partnership with streaming sites such as Netflix. Um, Many Korean production companies um, have to really fundraise as they go along with the production schedule. And this uh, resulted in a lot of problematic practices of product placement, um and um all kinds of you know um negative practices that come along with uh being burdened with the uh you know the, the pressure of kind of balancing your budget <laughs> so to say mm-hmm. um so in a way partnership with Netflix freed production companies uh of these burdens and in a way um uh, Drama producers were able to really focus on the quality of production and also um, not be burdened by these financial, you know, um, failure that they might have to uh, shoulder later on. Um, having said that, I know that there are a lot of problems and criticism that come with this lopsided profit sharing, um, especially when it comes to the um you know, ownership of IP. Um, I I don't need to go in detail. I think our listeners all know that Netflix owns 100% of Squid Game IP. Um, And many people have criticized how Netflix has really been the the contractor and Korean uh, drama world has kind of entered this relationship as subcontractor. I mean, we all know that and something has to change in the future. But um, I think as a first encounter between Netflix and the production team of Squid Game, I think the result was a success that benefited both.
1: I see. So what do you see for the future of perhaps streaming services in Korea and the relationship to Korean content?
0: Yeah, um, I think the partnership will grow, but I think there has to be a structural shift in profit sharing and benefiting the broader uh, industry at large. And I think this is um, done in many other uh, entertainment industries, such as uh, professional soccer leagues. I know it's a kind of <laughs> a weird analogy to make, um, but I think mm-hmm. the model there I think tells us something about um what these globally successful streaming sites can do to diversify um you know a diversify and more globalize, Content, right? So um I mentioned professional soccer leagues in um in, in Europe, and whenever they scout a new talent, um, and they pay this transfer fee to the previous team where their new scout has uh you know played, um, these uh the benefiters of this transaction are supposed to pay um The players, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and the previous professional teams, a certain fee to benefit fostering of future talents. I don't know if this immediately makes sense, but there's this trickle-down effect when a profitable transaction is made and a player is transferred from one team to another to benefit where that player has been groomed previously, starting with elementary school. And the recipients, uh, in this case, can reinvest that money to foster new talents. And I think... um, Kind of similar model can be implemented in the future. Um, Of course, this is an ideal scenario if it takes place. So, for example, if, uh, you know, global streaming sites such as Netflix could, uh, you know, cut out some of their portions of their profit to be reinvested in broader Korean production ecosystem, starting with uh, production companies, local production companies as well as acting schools in Korea universities or high schools that foster these talents i think it's going to be a uh, kind of you know a nice scenario for both parties and i think that is the only way to sustain the longevity of more globalized diversified content uh, supply
1: all right thank you for your answer you mentioned how um the director Hong Dong-hyuk, I hope I pronounced that correctly, his vision was sort of uh the driving force behind Squid Game and he's worked a lot in cinema more so than in uh, series. So could you ex- talk about how um like what threads draw his cinematic productions to what goes on in Squid Game if that makes sense? Sure. Um
0: Absolutely. Huang uh, Dong is an interesting uh, director. He doesn't really subscribe to one genre or one form of creating cinematic narrative. So he started out his career by um directing this uh sort of family melodrama and then moves on to directing historical costume drama, war drama, um, sometimes family comedy to the uh very visceral kind of uh expose of South Korea's social problems, such as abuse of minors, in his um highly acclaimed um, movie Togani, which really accuses the uh kind of Um, violation of human rights of minors and disabled people. So um, to sum up, he's very eclectic um, and he really uh, kind of adheres to strong um, conflicts uh, rather than adhering to certain stylistic consistency, if that makes sense. And I think these are important to uh, understand because I think Squid Game itself is very eclectic um on one level it is family melodrama on the other level it is a war on a reduced scale right i mean mm. this uh hong dong hyuk's kind of historical costume drama which was uh, which i love it has that kind of stern uh stylistic severity but that becomes kind of uh reduced in scale and becomes this um Uh, kind of uh, petri dish, you know, fishbowl where we can see this individual battling for their own survival. So it was reduced in scale, but it's still there. The elements are there. And the uh, expose of social ailment, such as um, how the wealth gap that we witness in today's world is going to destroy all of us. I mean, that kind of um, thread I think runs through his cinematic world and comes uh, to Squid Game to spawn a new story.
1: Thank you. So you've been mentioning the different visuals that have shown up in Squid Game. um, Those visuals were used to craft particular atmospheres and to share a specific message. Could you elaborate on the significance of Squid Game's visuals, such as gifts, shapes, masks, and other things you mentioned in your book? Sure. Uh, Let's start with the mask. Since I went on
0: with uh, how COVID, the times of COVID, and our experience of living through it recently was so crucial uh, for this show. Um, If you go back to the height of COVID days, wearing a mask was often related to the matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. and um i think we have all internalized how the rhetoric regarding public safety mask and not cramming in indoors was so crucial for survival um during covid and um this logic uh immediately transfers to squid game it's so strange how the timing of its release was Uh, exactly aligned with our internalized rules about wearing masks and not kind of uh, congregating in indoor space. So if you go back to the squid game, um, the ones who wear masks and the ones who don't wear masks are immediately divided into the groups of those who have power and those who don't have power. So these desperate contestants are crammed into this indoor space, Without masks, their identity is revealed, whereas the ones masked are the guards and the frontman, who is the leader of those guards um, and who is the mastermind behind all these games. Um, And also the the transfer of bodily fluids that we were so afraid of during COVID um, is also playing out in Squid Game. Um, you might remember that memorable scene in the first episode where uh these 100, um 456 contestants are playing um red light, green light. And uh when when those who violated the rules were shot, their their blood kind of spatters all over. And there's that fear of kind of mixing of bodily fluids which is something that we also learned and internalized during the times of COVID. And um, so those uh, kind of designs capture our uh, subconscious and the fears, the unspoken fears of living through COVID so effectively. Um, and I was really curious about how COVID is directly related to the design of Squid Game. So I had a chance to speak to um the uh, artistic director, who was sun who coordinated the entire visuals of the games. And uh, she said, actually, um, COVID did not really figure into the initial designs at all. Because, you know, when the show was being uh, produced, uh, act- actually designed uh, in the planning stage and being shot, um, we weren't actually entering the height of the COVID fears. So they didn't uh, really think about it but I think from the perspective of viewers, the timing of its release, release really merges with the times of COVID. So I think that's a really important factor of making the, the series uh, communic- communicated so easily across language borders. Um, and I have a few more things to say about the design, but I wonder how... Whether, we should, whether I should go on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, no, uh, if you would like to, you certainly can, um, or we can come back to it. The okay. Another question that I had is mm-hmm. in chapter two, you wrote, as a millennial parable on the pandemic, which we were just talking about, Squid Game speaks of the impossibility of free choice, the futility of human willpower, and the uneven rise of new cultural networks brought about by ever intensifying global streaming wars. So would you elaborate on how Squid Game reflects on Korean and on other modern societies?
0: Um, Sure. Um, I think hmm, this is a really uh, paradoxical uh, thing to say, but in a way, streaming sites uh, seem to give us lot of choices, right? I mean, to begin with, there are so many platforms that you can subscribe to and choose shows. And once you enter certain streaming sites, there are hundreds, thousands of things that you can see. But ironically, um, that so we seem to have more choices, quantitatively speaking. But when, when, it, when we come to making a real free choice, you really have to question how free are we? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in terms of the quality of the choice, I think our um, taste palette is getting narrower and narrower, particularly because the machines beat us. They're smarter than us in knowing what we like. And this constant algorithm of recommending more shows and more shows to you um, is very much symptomatic signs of the paradox of free choice that we have today. Um, I think that is also uh, a message that comes across in Squid Game. Um, if you closely follow the rules of the game, uh, actually the contestants do have a choice. They do, they are presented with a choice. Most obviously in, um, in the earlier part of the show, they can either choose to leave or stay by this collective vote because um, there is a rule that allows them to quit the game if more than half of them vote to quit anytime. But how free is that of a choice is something that the show really paradoxically reminds us. So let's say, um, yeah, these people decided to stay. We know that only one will survive by the default of the design of the show. Or if they leave as they did in the show, and this is pretty much the uh, entire content of episode two, what happens to those contestants who leave uh, as a result of collective vote? You see that their lives are no better than, necessarily no better than, um, you know, this life and death situation on that island where games are played. So what kind of free choice is that? Uh, is a question that the show is really reminding us quite painfully, I would say. Um, another scene where people are presented with clear black and white or red and blue choice in this case is the game of uh the folded disc game. Um, we remember Kihun, our protagonist, um, in a subway station. Um, I believe this was episode one. And he lost... Uh, you know, little earning he had from his horse gambling and he doesn't even have money to buy his daughter a birthday present and a mysterious man with a briefcase approaches him and he opens the case. There is red and blue uh, folded disc. So it looks like we have a choice, but what kind of choice is that again, right? Either you get slapped viciously across the face but the other party doesn't have to go through that because he has means to bail himself out of that pain by paying kihun when he loses. So I think uh, one philosophical kind of scaffolding that this show is building for us to think about is what kind of choice do we have in this world?
1: That flows in well to my next question, which concerns equality and fairness. That is one of Mm -hmm. the main themes in Squid Game, that question of like, what is equality? And you make a distinction between true equality and fairness masquerading as equality. Could you speak more about this distinction as it's made in the series? Right. I think think, um, it does
0: really touch upon what I said about um, not really having free choice. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think the show, in a way, very uh, cleverly and in a sneakish way, um, conflate equality with fairness. And I make a distinction in my book to be careful about not confusing them because they are different. Um, To begin with equality, I see equality as fundamental human rights uh, that should be presented to all of us. And this is um, what makes everyone a human, to have that equal opportunity to live to be educated, to have health care, to have housing, to have access to clean water and air. Mm-hmm. Um, those fundamental human rights are, I think, under the domain of equality that every human should be entitled to. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I think fairness is slightly different in a sense that um, you can be fair about both positive and negative, good and bad consequences. Say you can be fair in terms of giving people equal punishment. You can be fair about giving equal perks when they do well. Um, but I wouldn't say that that is the realm of equality because kind of uh, perverse, subverted, uh, inhuman rules can be fairly applied to everyone. And in that sense, the rules that we encounter in Squid Game is uh, a rule of fairness, but it's not a rule of equality because none of it translates to equality of human life Um, because Fundamentally, it shows how we don't have free choice to make what is best for us. So in a way, in a very sickening way, um, the rules of the game parade as equality, but they're really about fairness of implementing death to everyone who don't mm-hmm. make it. And even for the sole survivor, um, I wouldn't call Ki-hun in the final episode, A Living Man, I mean, I describe him as this walking zombie because how can he live a normal life when he has such clear understanding of what price he had to pay to walk out of that game?
1: So you wrote, the drama might have critiqued the capitalist expansion of greed, but now the show is creating a black hole that knew no satiation. Could you speak about how Squid Game fits into the circular production cycle?
0: Yeah, I think um <laughs> it's ironic, right? Um right. it's very tongue-in-chick. I mean, the the uh ideological kind of flag that they're waving is uh, oh, the capitalism is so sickening. I think we all walk away with the sick feeling of what the system is all about and how how our lives aren't that different from the rules of the games in a way. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it is playing squid game itself. I think the production company uh, director and everyone involved in making squid game and including us who watch it are actually mired in this capitalist game. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I started out my whole uh, sh- uh, point about free choice by giving an example of streaming sites. It seems to give us a lot of choices, but ultimately, no, we are actually being fed uh, more and more content by what machine, this whole mechanism recommends us. So in, in a way, there is a gap between practice and ideology here. The ideology of Squid Game seem to really confront capitalist structure but the whole phenomenon of Squid Game is fitting into that capitalist system. So I think there is a great bitter irony here.
1: I remember whenever uh, Halloween came around that year and there were so many people who dressed up as Squid Game, you could see how it had already manifested in the materialistic capitalist um, kind of way where people like businesses were taking advantage of the popularity to make these these uh costumes for people so yeah you could already see it happening yeah absolutely yes all right so would you like to speak any more about some of the visuals of the show such as uh i remember you spoke about gifts or you wrote about gifts in the book and i thought that was really interesting how you tied it in with some um, more anthropological concepts could you speak more about that
0: Sure, I think um, (laughs) to to give authors perspective, I think uh, the analysis on Gift is really the highlight of this book um, because I think um, what I'm hoping to do when I write books that concern something extremely popular such as K-pop or Squid Game is to see that these pop cultural things aren't just entertainment, but they do really speak so deeply about human conditions especially conditions of here and now. And I think, um, I hope the analysis on gift actually accomplishes um, what I just said. So um, the the viewers might remember that there is this visual thread throughout the games. Um, it starts with this, um, you know, chromatic scheme of dark pink and charcoal, um, dark gray or black. And um, you might remember that from the uh, coffins that dead contestants are put in, uh, and the coffins in a way, have this very strange shape of a gift box. It's a charcoal box, and it's wrapped in this pretty hot pink. And the coffin is put into this uh, flames to be uh, cremated. Now those uh, visual cues start to appear prior to seeing the coffins being burnt. And it starts with Kiwon's uh surprise present to his daughter um, that he scoops out of uh this uh claw machine in an arcade. And when the daughter opens this gift, it's uh the the toy gun, which is actually uh uh lighter. Um is wrapped in hot pink. So we get this kind of chromatic visual cue already there as a foreshadowing of what's coming on a larger scale. And we see it again um, in a reduced scale when uh Junho, this police officer figure who wants to find his missing brother uh, and sneaks into the island to figure out what's going on there, goes into his missing brother's room and finds this really small gift box that's barely big enough to contain a business card. And uh, once again, it's a dark charcoal box wrapped in pretty pink and he opens it and finds an invitation card to Squid Games. So uh, this trope of gift is used consistently throughout the show. And um, this made me really think about why gift box? Oh, my first reaction was, It's so sick. Uh, Why would you put a dead or nearly dead body in a gift box as if these uh, game organizers are giving the gift of death to these desperate contestants who have no better choice than to play these games? Um, So my first reaction was to think of it as such a perverse, uh, sick practice of uh, this benevolent, you know, um, VIPs or uh, game organizers who have it all granting the mercy of death to these desperate people. And I think we can read it at that level. Um, But this really made me think about the very complex history of gift giving in human history. So the old kind of uh, school anthropologist, French anthropologist such as Malinowski, used to uh, do field work in remote African uh, tribal societies, and realized that you know uh, before complex uh, monetary system that defines today's economy uh, was introduced, people used to conduct their economic transaction in the form of gift exchange. And the gifts that were given were not to be re-given or invested for the recipient's benefit. Um, So the, the basic human kind of, Economic transaction takes the form of gift giving, um, and it wasn't supposed to be reinvested for one's own advancement, but uh, actually, it could be a barter for further economic, uh, you know, um, interest of the of the uh, recipient. Now, uh, somebody like a uh, Jacques Derrida would have a very different view of gift. And uh, his uh, thesis is better understood in terms of uh, religious gift giving in a way. Um, To interpret this again, uh, Jacques Derrida said that gift giving is not really up to the recipient's choice. It's just given to the recipient and it should never be reciprocated. Meaning that the best Gift that can be given is something that is given to the recipient and the gift giver dies, so that there is no possibility of reciprocating the favor. So, uh, Jacques Derrida's notion of a uh, gift as uh, something that cannot be returned can best be understood in the frame of Christianity the absolute sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, ending in death and um, the the kind of impossibility of returning that. That is the purest notion of gift-giving. Um, and I think Squid Game plays around with this different register of uh, gift-giving. Um, there are instances of absolute sacrifice, such as we see in uh, uh, Jiyoung and Saebyeok, these two uh, female contestants and um, the heartbreaking ending that we remember of Cheong sacrificing mm. her chance to live to uh, make sure that her friend can live and walk out of this place is, I think, kind of hinting at this Derrida's notion of purest gift giving, whereas uh, the constant exchange of interest. And protection that we see among these contestants, especially uh, between um, this thuggish clique and the ones who want to benefit from their protection, we see this kind of gift giving as a form of economic exchange. Um, And all of these fascinating kind of history of gift-giving in humankind are playing in this microcosm of individual or paired-up players. So I thought it was truly uh, deep and fascinating how they were able to sketch out this intricate kind of um, dynamics of human influence and um, exchange in Squid Games.
1: Right, yeah, I didn't think about that when I was watching it. Um, And it almost occurs to me that yeah, at the end, when the main character, everyone has died and therefore he gets all that money. So it's almost sometimes an unwilling, but you can almost think of their, all of their deaths as a part of a gift so that he comes out with all this wealth. Um, yeah. And that's really, wow. wow.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I guess um, that the clashing, um, the clashing notions of, human life as gift, uh, comes out when we think of Ki-hoon and sang the final two contestants. And I think they have these two very different notions on how and why they came this far to be the final, um, you know, players right. and ki the ultimate survivor, uh, just like you said, <laughs> Leslie, um, understands other people's death as gift bestowed upon him he knows that he stands on these te- dead people's shoulders whereas his rival Saun doesn't agree with him um you remember that they have this big meltdown before they are uh you know entering the arena and this comes right after sebiok's death um that was um, carried out by sang Um, And he says, I came this far because I was strong. I was smart enough to come this far. So he doesn't see these other people's death as gift bestowed upon him at all. Mm. It's something that he exchanged for his own benefit. And this is what justifies him to kill um, the character of Ali um, and as
1: well wow yeah that's a great point um okay, so we've taken a lot of your time so I wanted to ask before we did any outro if you had any other aspect of the book that you would like to touch upon um before we start to say goodbye okay so I'll try to make it brief but um when I
0: when I was writing this book so many people asked why Korea now and <laughs> <laughs> This was an obvious question because um, it wasn't only, you know, K-dramas that were gaining such global following, but I think K-pop really pioneered the way. And this was also a huge question that uh, was looming um, before me as I was writing this book. And I think there are such a multi-faceted ways to explain this, but uh one thing that really stuck with me is because i think korea is uh provides an industry that is really prone to cultivating um marketable as well as successful hybridity um what i mean by that is um its economy is advanced enough to invest heavily in entertainment industry and yet its political influence in world stage is not quite there and in my view this in a way is beneficial for promoting its soft power because if korea were to be a kind of hegemonic nation such as us or china for that matter there will be a lot of uh, kind of pushback from global viewers. Um, you know. Not to mention the, the war, the trade and cultural war that goes on between China and the US, right? I mean, right. Korea in a way as lesser of political influence in global stage brings benefit of being exempt from that kind of uh, contested wars. And yet it has economic strength to invest in producing high quality content. So that's one level of hybridity. And another level of hybridity that Korea is able to spawn in its production is, um, it ha- it still retains so much of tradition in kind of people's emotional life and human relationship. And at the same time, um, the second half of its 20th century history was so compressed so expedited that um, it has westernized so many kind of external features of its uh, social and cultural life. So on the one hand uh, it adheres to this very strong traditional elements of strong communal familial human bond ties um, and at the same time the kind of more external features of how people live are very westernized so combining those two create very um, interesting and accessible forms of hybridity that translates well to global audiences
1: all right thank you i know it worked on me whenever i first saw korean content i was also (laughs) impressed with it um and i have remained so since then but thank you so much again for Uh, giving us this interview. And uh, one last question before you leave, we always like to ask our interviewees if they would let us know what they're up to now. Oh, yes. Um,
0: I am currently working on a book titled Millennial North Korea, uh, Forbidden Media and Living Creatively under surveillance. And um, this is a book that has been ongoing for a while. And I want to trace how uh, the introduction of cell phone networks in North Korea and uh, the consequential kind of importation of forbidden media, especially South Korean media, kind of shape social sentiment, especially among uh, younger generations that we know as Uh, 장마당 or marketplace generation. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: um, yeah, actually this project started prior to Squid Game, but due to the pandemic lockdown, I wasn't able to do my research uh, on a full scale. So in a way, Squid, uh, the book, Surviving Squid Game is a beneficiary of this situation (laughs) because it was sort of an impromptu project that emerged without uh, prior planning.
1: That sounds fascinating. Um, uh, Yeah, I can't wait until that comes out and get to know more about that. And with that, we'll conclude our interview. Thanks again for meeting with us. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you, Leslie. And thanks for listening. Of course. Bye.